0: Tonight, let's go to John chapter 2, if you would, please. John chapter 2. I won't read all the verses of the story. The story is chapter 2, 13 down through verse 22 when Jesus went into the temple wasn't happy with what he saw makes a whip out of cords drives all the money changers out of the temple, overturns their tables he's quite angry so he gets into a fighting match with the scribes and the Pharisees very quickly for this action and they ask him in verse 18 what sign do you show us since you do these things and then he gives a cryptic answer that nobody including his disciples understands he's in the magnificent temple magnificent building 46 years of slave labor to put that building together and Jesus he asked me for a sign I'm going to give you one it's cryptic and nobody understands it but he says destroy this temple and in 3 days I will raise it up destroy this temple and in 3 days I will raise it up. I want you to consider a verse out of the Old Testament, the last book in your Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, which are verses that John the Baptist will quote when he introduces Jesus. He quotes from Malachi. But verse number 2 says this, the lord will suddenly come into his temple who can stand the day when he shows up the lord will come to his temple if you know me listen to me to me for any length of time one of the favorite themes that I have, because it's a real burden in my heart, that we as the people of God must know His presence. Amen? Amen. We cannot function without His presence. We dare not have church without His presence. We dare not move without His presence. We need the presence of of God, I want us to consider, in order to understand this story in John chapter 2, we must realize that this is probably chapter 15 of a story that's already told, and, and you have to know the first 14 chapters of the story to get to this point, where Jesus can make this statement, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I want you to consider if you were a Jew living in the time of Jesus what the temple meant to the people. We can appreciate what the temple meant to the people. And to get that background I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. I believe the correct way in reading The creation story in Genesis chapter 1 from a theological point of view is that when God created the heavens and the earth with the Garden of Eden in it, that that was a temple. I think all Bible scholars today recognize that the creation story of heaven and earth is God creating a temple. A temple in which He would dwell And in all temples that have been built throughout history, the last thing you put into a temple is what? Your image. An idol, a statue of some sort. And as God creates a temple called the heavens and the earth, with the Garden of Eden in particular, the last thing that God puts into that temple is His image. And his image has responsibilities, which is a different message altogether than where I want to go tonight. But then, in the temple, what God wants to do, here's the heart of God, here's the desire of God. God wants to create a temple so that he can dwell in the midst of his people. God yearns for fellowship with his people. And the original story of creation is God creating a temple. So man could be in there, his image, and he would dwell in the midst of his people. That's the heart of the story. But as we're going to take a quick run through the Old Testament story here, we discover that, that even though that's the desire of God, that's the heart of the story, it is spoiled. God's image-bearing people are rebellious. A consistent story through the entire Old Testament, God's image-bearing people are rebellious. Sin takes over the story. In Genesis 3-11, to we see how sin affects the individual, family, society, and we saw global, on a global perspective at the Tower of Babel. And God answers the sin problem in Genesis chapter 12, by calling a man named Abram, later expanding his name to Abraham, and from Abraham should come a great nation, and that great nation nation will do what Adam failed to do, which is to reach out to the rest of the world and take it for God. That's the purpose of a temple, to reach out to the rest of the world and take it for God. And it was given up by Adam, the same mandate is given to Abraham and redemption starts with the story of Abraham but even this story goes sour very quickly it takes a nosedive as you work your way through the book of Genesis you see obstacles you see problems and then by the time you get to the book of Exodus God's people who should he be a blessing to all the nations of the earth themselves are in a problem, and they are in long-term slavery to Egypt. But God, and there's two words I love, but God. How many are glad that nothing is the last word you could always say, but God? But God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through the mighty story of the Exodus, as we read it in the book of Exodus, God's people are set free. Now that they are set free, they are consequently given the law that they should adopt the law as a way of life to show their gratitude towards, for the grace that was extended towards them. But what is truly astonishing in the whole Old Testament story that God wants to personally be present with his people. I'll have to find somewhere to preach tonight. I says, God wants to personally, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our failures, in spite of our sinfulness, the desire of God is he wants to personally be present with his people. That's powerful. He doesn't want to be distant. He doesn't want to be remote. And in spite of all the obstacles we keep throwing in His way, God's desire is to be personally present with His people. He's going to take them to the promised land. A pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud leads the way. Folks, that is God's personal presence leading the way. And then to solidify in their minds that he wants to be in their midst. I will be your God and you will be my people. I want to dwell with you. He gives Moses the plans to construct a tabernacle. That they would put in the middle of their camp. And God's very presence is going to dwell in that tabernacle. So this nation could say our God is the God who is personally present with us. And in our midst. Folks, that's good news. That is good news. And so, but while Moses is up getting the instructions of how to build this tabernacle so God could take up permanent residence in his people, the story is almost derailed before it begins, because while he's up there getting the instructions, the people... Well, what's this word rebellion again? What is it about human nature? rebel yet again while Moses is receiving these instructions. They're making a golden calf. But Moses prays, pleads for forgiveness, and his intercession is heard. And God consents. Listen to this. After Moses talks with God, God consents once again to personally go with his people. Not just send an angel but he consents to personally be with his people in spite of their tendency to idolatry, in spite of their rebellion. He's a God of forgiveness so that he can dwell with his people. Folks, Moses said, I'm not moving if your presence doesn't go with us. And I think I want to echo the same sentiment. I don't want to move if I don't know that I have God's presence. I don't want to undertake anything in his name without knowing I have his presence. I'm not, unless your presence go with us, don't lead us anywhere Now, once the tabernacle is finally constructed at the end of the book of Exodus, look what happens. And I want you to catch this at Exodus chapter 40 and read it with me. At the end of the book of Exodus, when they're finished constructing the tabernacle, look what happens. Look what happens. Well, the end of verse number 33 has this sentence. So Moses finished... The work. Verse 34, and what happens? What happens? It says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and even Moses, now that word even I put in there, but I'm saying even Moses himself, even Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Isn't that amazing? God forgave his people and then moves to dwell in the midst of his people in such an overwhelming, powerful, dramatic way that the presence of God was gloriously manifest in such thickness that nobody on that dedication day could even enter in because the power and the presence of God was so overwhelming that not even Moses could enter in. Any takers? Have you been in meetings like that? Have you been in meetings where the presence of God was so thick and so powerful I've been in meetings where nobody ever wanted to go home. Well past midnight, nobody wanted to leave because the presence of God was so thick and so powerful in the room, in the meeting. Folks, I want to see that. I'll say it again. Folks, I want to see that. The power of God. There is this repeatable, observable pattern all through the Old Testament. God intends to live amongst his people, but people have this habit of rebellion. But in spite of the rebellion, because God so desires to be with his people, he forgives and he responds in grace so that he can fulfill his desire to dwell in the midst of his people so he can say, I'll be your God and you will be my people. I want to dwell in the midst of you. And that's what the temple is all about. Now, you can see that this larger picture from the Temple of the Garden of Eden to the Temple built by Moses, you could see that picture. But magnify that picture over and over and over, and you've got a story, a storyline of the whole Bible. When you get to the end of your Bible in Revelation 21 22, the new heavens and the new earth, and can anybody tell me what it's like? Or what it is? That new creation, and at the end of your Bible, there's a temple. And God has taken up residence in the new heavens and the new earth. It's just a temple. So I guess I could call the Bible, instead of calling it the Holy Bible, maybe I'll call it from temple to temple. Because that's the theme. It's God's desire to dwell with His people. That's one of the grand themes of the Scripture. God wants to dwell with His people. But even with the glory showing in the tabernacle of Moses here in time, God's people prove, because they have uncircumcised hearts, still rebellious, and they cannot be the obedient people of God, and they continually sin. When David becomes king, he sees the disaster of the people of God, and he sees how the Ark of the Covenant is removed far from the the tabernacle of Moses, so he sets up a new temple, a new tabernacle, the tabernacle of David it's called, on Mount Zion. And when they worshipped the Lord on Mount Zion, folks, in the tabernacle of David, there was glory. One thing of I desire is to dwell in that place, to behold the beauty of the Lord, that I might see out here in the wilderness the glory that I'm so accustomed to seeing in the sanctuary. And there was the, the presence of God that David coveted and lived for. When David passes on, he he gives instructions to his son Solomon to build another temple. You should have been there to see this temple, Solomon's temple. It was so big, so huge, so much silver, so much gold, so much precious stones. It was, I mean, do you read through its construction? It was phenomenally, amazingly huge project, massive thing. And he dedicates it to the Lord. And you know what happens when he dedicates it to the Lord? You know what happens? It says, fire fell from heaven. They didn't have to light the altar. God himself did it. Anybody want God to light our hearts up a bit? (laughs) Not just a bit, (laughs) but consume us. Fire fell from heaven. And then when they were going to dedicate this temple, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And they had 120 priests and Levites who began to sing in unison. And they began to play the trumpet saying, Praise the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. And as they get dedicated the temple, folks, guess what happened? 2 Chronicles 5 Look what happened when they dedicated the temple 2 Chronicles chapter 5 Let's See if I can find it here Verse 11. Now I'm going to start picking up at verse 13. 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed indeed it came to pass, when the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And we lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever, that the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering. They could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. How many would like a break into the power of God just to interrupt church service? <laughs> And we can't continue on in anything because we are just overwhelmed in the presence of God. Just like when the tabernacle of Moses was finished and dedicated, God showed up in power to be personally present in his people. When Solomon dedicates his temple, God personally shows up in glory to fill the temple just so that he could be present with his people are we catching this heartbeat of God, is I want my glory to reside in the midst of my people. I want to say that I am your God, and you are my people, and I personally reside. I don't send my angel. I come in my glory to reside in your presence. That's the heartbeat. That is the desire of God. But, oh, I hate that word. On its own, but God's okay, but the word but by itself is not so nice. After Solomon's temple, succeeding generations once again give themselves over to incredible rebellion. Folks, what is there about human nature that want to rebel all the time? Incredible rebellion. And when faced with overwhelming idolatry, After offer of mercy, after offer of mercy, and offer of mercy was given repeatedly to the people of God, they had crossed a line. And the day comes, the sad day. It's not just losing the ark in battle to the Philistines, something much worse than that happens. The day comes when God says to his people, I'm done, I'm finished, and me and my presence are out of here. Folks, that's a sad day. When God says, I'm leaving, and I'm taking my presence, and I'm taking my glory with me. The magnificent temple is abandoned by God. It's left to the Babylonians to plunder and to destroy it. And God's people are carried off in exile into a foreign land. Why? Because they have repeatedly broken covenant with God. They don't know Him, and they're not serving His purpose. They have violated the covenant. And God says, I'm out. I'm gone. There is a terrible sense in the nation, in the people of God, that God has abandoned them and they're not sure he will ever come back. A horrible sense. And it's to this theme that some of the prophets in the Old Testament speak to that theme. Ezekiel is one of the prophets that spoke to that theme. And Ezekiel is one of these people who has been carried away into Babylonian captivity. He's not even in the promised land, but he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's in exile, and he's by a river named Kibar River. And while he is there, God visits him and starts to give him visions. And in vision form, he explains to Ezekiel what has happened and why it has happened. In the opening chapters of Ezekiel, well, he gets spectacular revelations. Ezekiel is allowed to to see the glory of God. You look at those, read those visions of Ezekiel, and he sees a throne. He sees the glory. He sees wheels in the middle of wheels. He sees consuming fire. He sees lightnings, uh, the cherubim, the brightness, the whirlwinds. This is the glory of God that is being revealed to Ezekiel, this glory that Israel has forfeited by continuously breaking covenant with the people, with, with, with God. Ezekiel sees the presence of God. That same presence that had been with Israel through the ages, that same presence that had marched with his people through the, the wilderness, that same presence that hovered above them in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, that same presence that divided the Red Sea, that same presence of God that divided the Jordan River, that same presence that conquered the Canaanite nations, that same presence that put King David on the throne, that same presence that exalted Solomon in all of his glory, that same presence by which Elisha and Elijah did miracles, that same presence that was with the people of God, Ezekiel saw it. Majestic, powerful form. But the sad thing that Ezekiel sees is the Spirit takes him to see the rebellion of the people and the rebellion of the leaders. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is allowed to see the moment. This is horrible. He's allowed to see the moment when God says, I'm out. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Ezekiel, slowly, it doesn't happen quickly, but slowly, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is almost like a, a mother bird that doesn't want to leave the nest. And, and in stages, Ezekiel watches the, the presence of God lift from the Ark of the Covenant, lift from the Holy of Holies, and, and goes and sits on the threshold that doesn't want to go. And then it goes back to the Holy of Holies. And then, no, it goes back to the threshold again. And then as time marches on, it's a bird that doesn't want to leave the nest. But as time marches on, the presence of God goes from the threshold to the eastern gate. And then he watches the presence of God go through the eastern gate. And he gets as far as, as the Mount of Olives and the, and the glory and the presence of God is just hovering there. And he's reluctant to leave. He doesn't want to leave because he's hoping, he's desiring, he's putting it out there. Maybe they will repent. Maybe they will make covenant with me. Maybe they will submit to me. But it never happens. And then finally the verdict is in. And the presence of God has left the people of God as if God is saying, covenant finished. It's over. It's done. And the people are gone into foreign captivity and the temple is absolutely destroyed and it's done in. My goodness. What a horrible piece of the story of Israel. A horrible piece of the story of Israel. Is everything lost? But listen again to the heart of God. Listen to the heart of God. Even in the midst of judgment, there is hope. Come on now. If you want to understand what Jesus said when he said destroy this temple and I'll build in 3 days, you have got to understand the story of the temple. Even in the midst of judgment there is hope. God the way Hosea portrays him, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 8, God's in torment. When this happened, God is in absolute anguish. His heart is absolutely ripped apart. God hated the fact that the exile happened. He's not pleased about it. He hates it. And he would say like this, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He says, My heart recoils within me. My heart is just being ripped out of me, God says, when I see this happen. When the glory departs and you're going into exile, my heart is just ripped apart in the inside of me. My compassion grows warm and is tender. God is ripped apart by this tragedy. He doesn't take this lightly. He's torn to pieces about it. That's how Hosea represents what's going on in the heart of God at this time of history. It's clear from the prophets that Israel deserved the punishment that it got. But listen to this. It is also clear. Are you ready to shout? It is also clear that in spite of all the rebellion, God can not easily, if ever, give up on His people. <clears throat> I think I will say it again because it deserves a better amen than that. In spite of all the rebellion and idolatry and forsaking the covenant, God cannot easily, if ever, give up on His people. So He will once again triumph in grace so that he may personally dwell with his people, even after this horrible story called the exile. Ezekiel puts it this way, I will preserve them, if for no other reason, but for the sake of my own holy name. And so Ezekiel is allowed to prophesy this. Just as the Spirit and the presence and the glory departed from God's people, he prophesies that one day the Spirit will return to God's people. Come on. We're setting this up for the New Testament now. There is the promise that the presence and the glory and the Spirit will once again come into a new temple. Because Ezekiel 40-48 to 48 begins talking about a new temple that will be built. And of course there's lots of discussion over what that means. But in chapter 43 I believe it is. Here's the promise. The Spirit that went out the eastern gate is the same Spirit in this new temple that will come back in through the eastern gate. The Spirit, folks shall return. Your sin and your rebellion will not have the last word. God will dwell in the midst of His people. And when that Spirit returns, there's all sorts of grand, great, huge promises. When that Spirit returns... Hope will come back to the people. God will cleanse the people. And through the gift of the returned spirit, God will actually change the inner nature of people. He will actually change the hearts of people, making you capable of obeying Him. Oh, that's good news. Causing us to be able to love Him and Obey Him. In other words, there's going to be a new people of God. They're going to be recreated from the inside out. And God says, and I personally, because the kings have been not doing so good that you had over you, and I personally will take over for your sake. Man, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. The presence will come back. Wonderful. Well, they're in Babylonian exile hearing this. When's all this going to happen? Seven decades go by, and the Babylonian exile is over in 70 years. And by a supernatural act of God, the people, for those who have a heart to do it, are allowed to go back to the promised land. Now they're still under foreign captivity, they're still under Persian domination, they will be under Greek domination, they will be under Roman domination for centuries, but they are physically allowed, geographically allowed to go back to the promised land. And under the leadership of somebody by the name of Zerubbabel, they begin to build the new temple. And you have to appreciate when they're building this new temple, the promise of Ezekiel has got to be ringing in their ears and ringing in their hearts. We've got to build this temple because God says His presence will come back. But it's a difficult build. Only under adverse and the most difficult of circumstances can they build this temple. It actually took them two years just to lay foundation. It's a long time. People are getting tired of it. Two whole years just to do foundation. Well, they dedicated the temple when the foundation had been laid. But the building that Zerubbabel built was so small in comparison to the magnificent temple of Solomon that it came off as a poor, disappointing, and a pale substitute for what the nation had previously had. And besides that, the Ark of the Covenant had been missing. Nobody has known where it's gone. And the Ark of the Covenant is not even there. And when they dedicated this, what's called the second temple, or Zerubbabel's temple, there is no evidence of the presence of God. Read the story in Ezra. No fire fell, no glory cloud showed up. It appears as if after they begin to build this temple and they dedicate it to God, it appears that God has not come back, like Ezekiel said. Has not come back to his temple. You and I cannot understand the depth of disappointment that those people experienced. God had not shown up. This became a terrible burden upon the nation. Why is God not manifesting himself in the temple? then after that there was still hostility and the building of the temple was hindered for 17 years and finally the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene and through their prophesying stir up the spirits of the people to finish building the temple and with renewed zeal they begin to finish the temple and they get it accomplished in a certain amount of time and they're hoping when it's all finished that God would repeat the story of Exodus 40 he'd repeat the story of Solomon and yet when the temple is Built, there is no response from heaven. There is no manifestation of glory. But in the midst of this disappointment, Haggai prophesies this that the glory of this second temple will be greater than the glory of the first. In other words, what God will do in the new temple will outstrip what he did in Solomon's temple. And what he did in Solomon's temple was pretty fantastic. But the glory will be greater. But it never happened. There is no sense that it ever happened. Time marches on. Generations come and go. And there's never been the manifestation of glory back in the temple. It just hasn't been there. Israel strives and tries to stay true to its heritage. But the temple goes through up and downs. By the time you get to the end of your Old Testament, Malachi, according to Malachi, even the priests are bored with church. And they're slack and they're bored because they're going through the thing. But where's the presence? Where's the presence? Go through the routines, but where's the presence? Where's the glory? Where's, where's, the, where's the sense of God being with us? And then in the midst of this boredom, Malachi prophesies this in chapter 3, words that John the Baptist alludes to in his preaching, that the one that Israel seeks, listen carefully, will suddenly come to his temple. he will suddenly come to his temple. But then he adds this, but who can endure it and who will stand when he comes? Well, are they ready for that moment when God shows up? Were they ready for that moment when, like in the tabernacle of Moses, the the glory was so powerful that even Moses couldn't get in? Are you ready for that moment when God comes in power, that in Solomon's temple nobody could minister by reason of the cloud? They could not stand? I don't know if that means they were just slain out in the spirit or what it means, but it says they couldn't even stand to minister by reason of the cloud. Are you prepared for that moment? And the work of John the Baptist was to prepare people for that moment in history when God would come back as he he said he would come back and the glory of the Lord was going to be revealed. Get yourself ready for the fulfillment. God's coming back to his temple. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? So the Old Testament closes out with this idea that the story of the exile has never really been finished. No real return of the glory of God and in the absence of the presence of God, over the centuries, Israel's got to readjust. What do we believe here? Were we wrong in what we believed? And all sorts of theologians start re-looking at the promises of Abraham and through the prophets. And since it hadn't happened like we thought, they had to, well, how many know that a lot of times you get these prophecy charts, this is what I believe, and it didn't work out the way you thought, and you got to well, let's, let's change our charts here. And they have to change what they believe. And all sorts of different schools of thought, the Pharisees, and even within the Pharisees, there were differences of opinions amongst the Pharisees. And then the Sadducees came out of that, and the Herodians came out of that, and the Essenes came out of that, and the Zealots came out of that. All with different understandings of why the presence of God had not come back to the people, and what we have to do to get that presence back And it's into that world, with this constant heartache, this sorrowful nagging, that God has not come back to his temple. And until he does, will we ever be free of foreign domination? When is God going to come back to his temple? Into that mindset, enter Jesus. When he walks into the temple, he's walking into a big question here about the presence of God. You know, when he, he, he it's just the, the he's this mindset he's entered into this situation. Who is this Jesus that shows up? They haven't got the eyes to see, but he's the fulfillment of the fact that God is coming back to his temple. Amen. It's Jesus comes when he walks through the doors of that temple, the scriptures being fulfilled. But do they recognize who Jesus is? Jesus gave them all sorts of clues for sure. He walked on water. I mean, what kind of a statement is that? Only God, the God of Israel walks on water. No other person, no other God walks on water. When he walked in water, he might have had a sign sign saying, I'm the God of Israel that's coming back. When he, he had authority over the wind and the sea, only the God of Israel has got that kind of authority. When his name is Emmanuel, call his name Emmanuel, that's God himself has showed up. It's not God sending an agent, it's the personal presence of God himself is coming. Who drove the demons out of that? that gathering demoniac, go and tell what great things God has done for you. Not a man anointed by God, but God Himself. Who wept over the, the fate of Jerusalem because they didn't recognize their visitation? What do you mean visitation? What visitation? You have been crying out for centuries for God to come in His power, and here I am. And you don't receive it. You don't recognize it at all. Why did they not recognize the glory when it came? Why didn't they see the glory when Jesus turned water into wine? Why didn't they see the glory when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? They've cried out for this glory, and God has come back in the flesh to his temple. And when he gets into the temple, what does he find? Does he find a house of prayer for all nations? Absolutely not. What he finds is a den of thieves. And he treats it appropriately. As Malachi said, who can stand in the day of his appearing? The temple, instead of being the dwelling place of God, is a symbol of rebellion once again. So, what's going to happen to that temple? It's going to be given over to destruction. Which literally happened in the year 70 A.D. When the zealots fought a war with the Romans, they hold themselves up in that temple, and the Romans, in order to get to the zealots, took that temple apart brick by brick, just as Jesus said it would happen, and that temple was destroyed. Look at this from the perspective of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 14 And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to return to the temple. And he himself is the temple and he comes, folks, with glory. He comes with the presence of God. All the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus fulfills everything there is about the temple. In chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, He says, I'm the one who provides living water. At Hanukkah, in chapter 10, he would say, I am the true and I am the loyal shepherd that will personally take over the shepherding of my people. At that final Passover, he says, the hour is not come. The prince of the world has nothing in me, but I have overcome the world. I have overcome its ruler. Just like Israel overthrew Pharaoh in Egypt in order to liberate his people once for all, Jesus says, I am the great Passover. Jesus Is not only the temple in person. He's the one in whom everything that normally would happen in the temple is fulfilled. Jesus is the festivals. He's the presence. He's the priesthood. He's the sacrifice. And he personally brings the presence of God. It's all manifest in Jesus. He is the temple. And he is everything that is in the temple. At the Last Supper when he's speaking with his disciples. You read those passages in John you get the sense that they are entering into a new thing that this world has never seen and Jesus keeps talking about and the spirit's coming and the spirit's coming and the spirit's coming I'm going up after the sacrifice and I'm sending the spirit Ezekiel's promise is about to be fulfilled but not in that rebellious tabernacle but in a new temple, the body of Christ. In that upper room, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to be with me. But rebellious mankind, the religious leaders, have took it upon themselves to destroy the true temple of God. They're going to crucify him and destroy the true temple of God they haven't got a clue what he's meaning, but Jesus says, destroy this temple, in three days I will rebuild it. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, they destroyed the temple of God. Three days later, at the resurrection, folks, his body has taken on a new form. His body has taken on a new form, and there is a new temple. Church, you and I are the temple of the living God. Let's get this in our heads, in our hearts, what that means. When we are referred to as the temple of the living God, That means what God has done in Jesus is for the sake of fulfilling the great desire of His heart is I want to dwell personally in glory and in power and my presence. I want to dwell in the midst of my people. That's the desire and the yearning and the heart of God. And when the Bible says, And you are the temple of the Holy Ghost... Folks, we are the recipients of Ezekiel's great promise that the Spirit is coming back. Folks, we're privileged people. We are privileged people. With the Spirit coming back, we are the temple. We have a new covenant, a new understanding of what the law is all about. We are a newly constituted people. The presence of the Spirit is witness to all those things. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm Pentecostal. I guess you're not. I'm glad I believe in God's empowering presence. Don't leave home without it. (laughs) Amen? At that last supper, Jesus told his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. After the resurrection, it dawned upon them that they were the new temple of God. And when God pours out the Holy Spirit, the very presence, the Shekinah glory of God, has come back to God's temple. When John the Baptist introduced Jesus, he said, Look, I'm the one who baptizes in water, but for century after century after century, you've been longing for the day when the Spirit comes back to the temple, the one I'm about to introduce to you, He is going to immerse you, baptize you, and plunge you in that Spirit that has been missing for centuries. He's coming back, and He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In other words, Ephesians 2.22. We are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit that we might be His dwelling place. Why do you think we have the name we have? His dwelling place. By sending His Son by sending His Spirit, the yearnings, the longing of the saints for centuries has been fulfilled. God has God, is temple. And it is truly filled with His glory and with His presence. God has taken up residence in the midst of His people. And He is personally present with us. To lead us and to guide us. In the entire journey. Until we get to the day of His appearing. He has made it possible to be personally present with you, not just in theory, but in power. It is the honor and it is the privilege of each one of us to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, overflowing with the power of God, and have the personal presence of God in our lives. Will you settle for anything less? Since that has been God's desire from Genesis chapter 1. That has been God's desire from the beginning. Like Moses, we say, I'm not moving. (laughs) I must not and I cannot live without his presence, without his spirit. We are his temple. We are his dwelling place. Amen.